Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Pause I Am Radio. Your hosts for tonight's show are Robert Brining and Jeremy Dunn. They will be taking your calls and speaking with a different guest each week. You are encouraged to call in and share your life experiences with us. The number to call is 347-215-9442. That number again, 347-215-9442. Are you ready for your dose of hope? You're listening to Pause I Am Radio. This evening I am joined by the fabulous Jeremy Dunn. How are you, Jeremy? I'm terrific. How are you? I'm doing great. Hey, I have an echo, what? though. Yeah, what's that? I have a little bit of an echo. You have a little bit of an echo? Yeah, I'll take the headphones off. I think it was that. So. Uh, yeah. There you go. There you go. There you have it. Hey, um, before we get started tonight, I just want to send a... Uh, just kind of a, a quick little message out to our neighbors in the north in Newtown, uh, Connecticut. Uh, they experienced an incredible tragedy this week. Uh, Twenty children gunned down in their classroom and uh, six adults. So it, it's a horrible, horrible thing that's happened up there, and I don't think we uh, should go on tonight without just giving them a little bit of a shout-out. So that's all I wanted to say before we've got everything started. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've I heard a little bit about that on the news uh, in the last, you know, 24 hours. So, uh, oh, I agree. Horrible. Yeah, horrific. I don't understand how these people are going around doing stupid things like that. But I don't, I don't know how people can go. Uh, I, uh, so, okay, my soapbox. Why the fuck do you need an AK-47 or or a, a, a high-powered um, assault rifle? You're not going to go hunting deer with that thing. Yes. You know, the only reason why you get an assault rifle is to kill people. And for anybody to stand up and say it's our right to bear arms, yeah, if you're forming a militia, read the freaking, you know, read the Constitution again. But anyway, anyway, I, there I am. I'm done. I'm done. I digress. <laughs> I digress. <laughs> oh, so, so how, is your, how was your week? It was good. It was good. Other than that awful Friday. I mean, was it Friday or Thursday? It was Friday morning. I don't remember. Friday morning. Yeah, it just happened this past Friday. Um, but it was good. Uh, and uh, just, you know, looking forward to trying to guess. Yes, I hear you. I had a little bit of a sad week, unfortunately. Um, I don't remember if I spoke about it last week because it happened um, – yeah, it happened. It happened last weekend. So my grandmother passed away. Um, I don't remember. Did I did I talk about that last week? You did. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. She passed away. She was 87 years old. She was married to her husband for 57 years. And you know, I, I lost her grandfather before when I was in high school. And now that I'm a little bit older, you know what I mean? Like it, it, it just kind of sat with me in a different way. Um, it was my dad's mom, so since my dad is deceased, it kind of made me a little bit more comforting knowing that my grandmother was with him, that they were reunited again and doing whatever they do where they are. <laughs> um, you know what I mean? So it was it was a bit depressing this week, I have to say the most. Um, just dealing with that, I was asked to be a pallbearer, so I wasn't kind of – it's the first time I ever did that, so it was a little awkward. Okay, so, so when was the funeral? Um, the viewing was Wednesday night, and then there was a mini viewing in the morning on Thursday, and then Thursday was the actual funeral. So you haven't had the funeral yet? I haven't had the, none of the funeral, no, it was last week. This week the oh, past, last Wednesday week. and Thursday. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was a pallbearer um, once for an uncle of mine who passed away. And I, I'm going to tell this story because it is equally disturbing and funny all at the same time. <laughs> so 
uh, I get there, and and I I have a huge family, okay, huge huge family, mm-hmm. and I show up to the church, and I, I've got ten or fifteen cousins standing out there by a car, and there's six of us, or eight of us, I can't remember, six or eight of us that are pallbearers. And before the funeral starts, now I have to tell you, this is in southern Missouri, down in the Ozarks. So I get down there. So I have to preface this. It's in, it's in, the, it's in the Ozark Mountains. Mm-hmm. I get down there, and there's my cousins out there. And they say, Jeremy, come here, come here. So I go walking over there, and they pop the trunk. The whole trunk was full of moonshine, full of it. So they, uh, hand me a, they hand me a mason jar. I, I, I mean, we're all swigging it, right? Mind you, most of us are pallbearers. Okay? Mm-hmm. So we're almost toasted before the funeral starts. Oh, jeez. And there's two ways to get the casket out of, 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 the, of, the, of the church. We could have gone out the side, which was completely level, right? And bring the hearse mm-hmm. up, bring it in. Oh no. The family wanted to to, to take the they wanted to take the casket down the center of the church and down the front steps. Oh my jeez. Okay. So if everybody's listening to this and you you're gonna think this is horrible. So as we start walking down the stairs, we all forget that we have to keep the casket level. So the casket starts going down at an angle. And then all of a sudden you hear this thump. My uncle wow. is now laying fetal position in the, <laughs> the bottom of the casket. Oh, my Lord. Thump. And then you hear all of us, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. And we're like, I go lift casket back up, kind of shake him back. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that, 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 there you have it. That, that's my Paul Barrett story. I have, uh, um, none of us have been asked to uh, be a Paul Barrett again since. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> wow. So, again, it is, it is both, yes, disturbing, yet funny. Yeah, it was it was it was uh it was a weird experience. Like I said, I never did it before and it didn't really hit me. Like I guess I have a different sense of when somebody passes away, like what happens or you know, I have a different feeling. So I don't get very I'm not a very emotional person. Like my sister and both of my sisters, as soon as they saw my grandfather in tears or my aunt, like they just lost it immediately. Um and they and when we were there it I didn't hit it didn't really hit me until we were walking out of the church, and they were playing that freaking song on Eagle's Wings. Um, and they had us lay our, you know, our one hand on the casket as they rolled it out, and then we carried it down the steps. But I'll tell you what, those caskets are fucking heavy up those steps going heavy. to church. They, they've got to I was carrying it. When I went, when I, we went into the church, I was, um, me and my brother-in-law were the first ones on each side, and I was on the left side, so I was using my left hand. Well, that wasn't happening. I had to end up using both hands to get up the steps. So when we went out, I was like, we're switching. Because I'm right-handed, and my right hand is a little stronger, so it'll be a little easier to hold Grandma up. Oh, but yeah, they are very epic. Oh, God. But, I mean, it was good. I mean, it was it was... Good to see family. It was an unfortunate circumstance. Um, the only, you know, thing that kind of came out of it that was was interesting was that my mom and my one sister have never been to my dad's grave since he was buried 11 years ago, and my grandmother is buried, you know, not too far from him in the same cemetery. So we all got to go up there as a family and say a prayer, you know, for my dad and my grandfather and different things like that. And then ironically is that she's, my grandmother is actually getting married to, isn't married, listen to me, is actually getting buried next to her first husband, Arthur Briney, who was actually my grandfather who died when my dad was two, he died at the age of 27. So they're married next to each other. Married. See, I said it again. They're buried next to each other, and I never, ever knew that his grave was there. So I got to actually see his grave as well, which was kind of interesting. 
Well, you know, a lot of folks did that back then. You mm-hmm. know, they bought the plot together and everything like that. So I'm, I'm, I'm with you. It's just like my, uh, I have a great grandmother who uh, passed away uh, many, many years ago. But her first husband was, uh, I think it was a sheriff or a deputy or something like that. And he was shot in the back by some wily, um, oh, <clears throat> he was shot in the back by uh, by, by some ne'er-do-well back in the early 30s. Oh, wow. So he was paralyzed. And uh, then when he died, they buried him, and we have a family plot. We have a family grave graveyard out in right. Missouri. My dad's family does. And uh, so they buried him, and then about 40 years later, they buried my grandma, my great-grandmother with him. Right. So, and she had never remarried, by the way. Right. She was forever a widow. It's interesting because my grandmother remarried, you know, not long afterwards, married my grandfather now. And I mean, they've been together for 57 years, five kids, so many grand. I mean, it's amazing. And it's just, you know, losing a grandmother is something that, you know, it, it hurts. I mean, for me, I mean, I. I didn't know what to expect, you know what I mean? I'm not the most, like I said, the most open or emotional person who will talk about their feelings, but it just hit me in a way that I felt like we lost the matriarch of our family. Like, she was the one who held everybody together. If there was a fight, she was the one who, you know, would not take sides but talk it out. And she was just, you know, like she raised a great family starting from her and her husband, you know, my grandfather, all the way down to my my nieces and nephews who are their great grandchildren. It's just amazing, and you know I just miss her, and I just hope that you know my grandfather you know, was able to deal with it because uh, he's 89 years old, and you know losing somebody you've been with for such a long time can be devastating. Yeah, you know I mean death is always a difficult thing to get through, and and you know today I uh, went to awake <clears throat> for. Uh, my my boyfriend's roommate, his mother, had passed away the same day, actually, as the uh, the Connecticut thing happened. So, you know, it's it just you know you see someone and you see them laying there, and it, it's just a constant of of our own mortality. So. So, you know, we're going to switch topics here, Mr. Robert. Is this already... Yeah, yeah, I didn't, mean to, I didn't mean to depress anyone, but I just wanted to talk a little bit about... Yeah, you know, we, need to talk, we need to talk about our guests. Yes, yeah, so let's talk about our fabulous guests. Do you want to tell us a little bit about them? Well, you tell us about them. I, uh, I, I fabulous... set it up for you. <laughs> um, we actually, wait a minute, we met Ken at the International AIDS Conference this year, correct? That's where we first met him. That's right. Right, and I remember it was outside of it was outside of the building when we were waiting for the candlelit vigil that never happened. What? I think that's right. Do you remember when there was supposed to be a candlelight vigil? That's right. That's where we met him. Yeah. Yeah, because we were outside because my friends um, Kevin and James came out from Philly. Yeah. And right. I remember hanging out there. Yeah, yeah. And that was where we actually, you know, first met Mister. Warnock, and I'm excited to have him on. He served in the Navy for three years, and he's going to talk about what it's like, um, you know, being somewhat recently HIV, um, diagnosed HIV positive, um, and he's going to, um, you know, basically share his story. So please help me welcome Ken Warnock to the slides. Hello, Ken. Hey, Robert. Hey, Jeremy. How are you? Good, Ken. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. Yeah, that was, uh, I came out for that uh, candlelight vigil and uh, was like, where is everybody? And I'm like, that guy looks familiar. And um, then I found out it was canceled because the speakers were going way too long in the uh, conference hall. Yeah, that was annoying. <laughs> yeah, so, but I got to meet you guys. Aaron was there. I met Aaron Laxton. And uh, David was there, David Pontart, and Daniel Bauer. Famous Daniel Bauer. So Daniel yeah, who? Mr. <laughs> Bauer, the magician. Yeah, he's so I got um, to meet all actually, these famous people. 
Fort Daniel is is um, going to go see a dentist tomorrow because he's got a uh, he's got a horrible horrible toothache that I've been having to deal with for the last few days. So I told him to get his little butt to the dentist. I'm tired of listening to the wine. Yeah, that definitely. I'm uh, kidding, Daniel. I'm kidding. If you hear this. <laughs> wow. It's okay. It was yeah, definitely so awesome to meet you at the conference. I mean, um, you know, being friends online and meeting people, for me, you know, I we talked about this before, that for me that's what these conferences are about, meeting the people that, you know, we connect with online and we interact with every day because social media is such a way of doing things nowadays that, you know, it's like you don't pick up the phone and call your friends anymore. You just tag them and like them on Facebook. So it was nice to finally meet, you know, you in person. Um, do you want to start us off with, uh, where do you want to start us off with? Do you want to t- tell us a little bit about your, your days in the Navy? Well, in the Navy. Know, <laughs> yeah, Jeremy loves his men in uniform. Um, yeah, I, I went into the Navy, like, right after high school. I was, like, 17, so I was, um, my folks had signed for me to go in. And um, that was, like, the mid-'80s, and they were just rolling out HIV testing at that time. Um and I was, um, although I knew very well I liked guys, I um, hadn't quite come out of the closet at that point, but I um, was in the process of coming out of the closet. And when they rolled out HIV testing um, to the military, active duty military people, um, as a Navy uh, corpsman, we were doing the uh, testing. So on my shift, uh, over the course of a week, we did like almost uh, 2,500 blood draws on people because it was a blood test back then. And I wasn't really worried too much um, for myself, even though I had uh, some experience as a gay person. Um, And, you know, everybody was basically told that, oh, yeah, it's the... Um, gay people from San Francisco and New York and Haitians that, you know, have this problem. And so I wasn't too, too worried since I'd never been there. Um, and when we got the results of all those tests back, we had one positive uh, result um, was a young man uh, who worked on the admiral staff, I guess. And I, I kind of feel bad because I never found out what happened with him. And then ultimately, um, okay. I was did, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Did Tony yeah. just flush the toilet? <laughs> no. Like, I'm like cleaning the flush. Sorry, yeah, kid. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Who knows? It's the Navy. What? Um, and then I was uh, kicked out of the Navy uh, shortly afterwards. Um, well, uh, about a year after that, uh, 1987, um, uh, during the witch hunt. So um, that kind of started me on the path of becoming a uh, gay activist, uh, a human rights activist. Um, I said, you know, discrimination is not right and can't be tolerated. Um, and so I got involved in a bunch of different uh, gay and lesbian organizations. Um, I was a gay and lesbian rep for the Michigan ACLU for a while. Got involved with the uh, uh, Human Rights Campaign Fund, which is now Human Rights Campaign, and then the NGLPF. Um, used to go to the Creating Change conferences. and So I was like, you know, a little activist, um, you know, for, um, well, from the time I got out of the Navy. Um, and then, um, you know, cut to, uh, 2002 and I landed in the hospital and, um, was diagnosed with, uh, HIV as a result of being hospitalized with, uh, pneumonia. And, um, uh, so I got involved, uh, more with the, um, HIV community as a result of that. So you didn't actually go and go and get tested yourself. You were actually sick and went to the hospital, and then that's when they tested you for it. Well, the interesting thing is, um, it, until about like 1990, um, you know, I I never really used condoms because I was like my knowledge at that point was still basically what I learned from the Navy was that you know, oh, it's you know the 
gay people from San Francisco or New York or something. And I'm, you know, I just live outside Detroit, so I'm like not that worried about it. And somebody's like, dude, you got to wear a condom and stuff. And so I was, you know, did that a little bit. I was in a relationship for almost 10 years as well. But afterwards, you know, um, I, uh, you know, would get tested. Um, I got tested like every year for the first half of the 90s, and then I was going every other year. And so I had just gotten tested um, in January of 2002. And within a week, uh, I was in the hospital uh, with pneumonia. So I hadn't gotten my uh, uh, results back yet. Um, And so uh, the doctor that came in, real nice guy, um, is like, well, since you work here at the hospital and there's some people who would uh, possibly look at your records, we're going to kind of do this discreetly. So they didn't do an HIV test at that point, but they looked at uh, my CD4s. um, And I had a few of those but not many. So, um, yeah, so it was pretty much confirmed at that point. So, yeah. No, it so it wasn't something that you, so you didn't actually, did, did they come to you and ask you to give you a, a license? You said they did a CD4 test. Yeah, the CD4, I mean, that's a standard blood test, so they didn't, you know, it wasn't like you needed a consent form or anything for that. Right. Um. And the doctor felt that that was sort of the truth because many people wouldn't understand what that was exactly. So, right. Yeah. So, so, so how how did you? I mean, so they just gave you your numbers. Did they say that you were positive? Did they follow up with an HIV test or? Well, the my doctor was like, um, you know, you you'll go back and get your test result, I'm sure, but, you know, based on the CD4 numbers and your diagnosis, uh, you know, that's, this is where you're at, you know, you're HIV positive, you have AIDS, um, and so you need to, they referred me to an infectious disease doctor, and um, before I had that appointment, which was almost three weeks or so later, um, I did a bunch of research so I would know. I'm I'm a big research geek, medical research, and so I had researched the different uh, medications that were available, and um, had already kind of picked out my initial combination, which was uh, Combavir and uh, Sostiva at the time. <clears throat> and um, so when I went to the doctor, the infectious disease guy, who's like great guy, I like him a lot. Um, Dr. Carpenter is like, um, okay, so you seem pretty smart. What what drugs do they have you on? And I said, Bactrim. And he's like, what? You're not on any ART? And I said, uh, no. I said, the doctor wanted to wait, you know, to see what you wanted me on rather than switching things up. I said, but here's what I'm looking at. And he's like, yeah, well, okay, that's what I would recommend anyway. So, okay, let's get you on that and um, had a great uh, response to it. Um, AZT sucks. Um, so I'm glad they um, came up with uh, other um, medications, so I've switched over my combination from that. So were you um, diagnosed HIV positive, or were you diagnosed with an AIDS diagnosis? Um, well, at the time I was in the hospital, it was pretty much assumed that I was um, that I had AIDS. We didn't, you know, they didn't do an HIV test. Um, when I went back to the doctor, I had gone back to the testing center where I had the test and gotten the result, and um, they, um, you know, so that basically confirmed it at that point. So, um, last question before I let Jeremy um, ask if you, when they did tell you that you were positive or that, you know, um, what were your feelings? What, what was going through your head? What was going through your head? <laughs> what was going through your head at the time? Oh my like God. a bug in the windshield. What's the last thing that goes through the bug's head, the windshield? Um, <laughs> yeah, for me, you know, I was pretty sick. I 
I was really, really close to getting put on a ventilator. Um, and, you know, knowing my personal history, um, you know, it wasn't a surprise for me. Um, and I've never been one to typically curl up in a ball and just cry and suck my thumb when faced with difficult challenges. Um, you know, going through the witch hunt in the Navy, um, you know, you just deal with it. It's like, okay, here's what the challenge is. What can we do to change that or correct it or make it better or tolerable or whatever? So that's kind of my worldview on things rather than just laying around whining about it. Um, You know, I got to work on looking at the research. So it wasn't... You know, I didn't spend any time whining or crying about it. Um, I was worried about my parents. And at that point, and, you know, even working in the medical field and stuff um, and being involved with gay and lesbian organizations and having friends who had had uh, HIV and AIDS and losing friends to AIDS, um, I really, at that point, didn't have, other than the basic clinical knowledge of it, um, I didn't understand the real prognosis and what the um, how how much of a great impact that you know the ART would have. For so I basically got out of the hospital and while doing the research before I went back to work, you know I did my durable power of attorney for healthcare, living will. I wrote a last will and testament because I wasn't really sure how much time I was going to have. But, wow. Yeah. So so when you did tell your parents, I mean, or in your family, how did you do it and how was, what was your reaction? Um, well, I actually told my parents in the hospital, um, and mom cried, um... You know, I I didn't go into the difference between HIV infection and AIDS. You know, I had said that, you know, know, I I might have said that I was HIV positive, um, but I, um, at at that point, actually didn't have that result because I was still in the hospital. But they were um, very supportive. I actually spent a few days, maybe a week, over at my parents' house after I got out of the hospital so mom could nursed me back to health. <laughs> and um moms do such great work that way. And right. um so yeah, so they've been um very supportive. Um you know, both of my parents are just such wonderful people. Um I can't say anything but the greatest things about them. So I've been very blessed and fortunate um with my family and my extended family as well. Um and it was kind of similar to when I had came out to them um, a number of years earlier, than like 87, um, that they're like, okay, well, we love you. You're a son that's never going to change, and um, let's not tell anybody. And um, I was like, okay, that's fine. So they had told my brother, and then, you know, they told some of their other, like my aunts and uncles and stuff, my one aunt was like, um, you know, to my mom, her name's Sally, she's like, uh, Sally, you're really, you know, depressed, you're bummed out, what's the matter? And so she broke down and told my aunt that I was gay, and she's like, oh, that's all? Yeah, we basically sort of knew that. <laughs> and um, mm-hmm. so when when I was diagnosed with um, AIDS, it was like... Um, not as big a deal to um, talk to the, you know, the, you know, my aunts and uncles, and so the family has just been wonderful. Um, I've never had any issues, um, you know, with that. Uh, the only issue is I had one uncle who my um, dad's uh, one sister um, wound up divorcing him, uh, but that was because for whatever reason, but he didn't like gay people. He didn't like anybody, so, yeah. So he's not part of the family anymore. Um, But everybody else in the family is just wonderful. I've been really fortunate. Both my dad's side and mom's side of the family are just great, 
Hello? Did I lose you guys? Yep. Nope. No, we're here. There was a lot oh. of background noise there just then. Yeah, I just wasn't sure. I thought I heard something. So, um, so you said you haven't really had any negative reactions from people? Um, not from family. And um, as far as, like, coming out and stuff, I, you know, I've never, and I, I never really kind of understood this. I used to go to P-Flag when I first came out, and I took my mom. She went, and my dad actually went a few times to P-Flag. I, I never really had this need to say, hey, so-and-so, you know, I, I want you to know this, I'm gay. Um, and same thing with, you know, being HIV positive, I've not had this need to, like, go up to people and, you know, tell them, uh, you know, hey, listen, let's do lunch, I need to tell you something and all this stuff. I, you know, if people ask questions, I tell them. Um, and... You know, I do things like the posts I have on Facebook or whatever that, you know, talk about HIV or AIDS or whatever. Um, you know, people may make their assumptions or have their assumptions or whatever, and if they ask the question, I'm not going to lie to anybody about it. And so far, anybody who's asked and, you know, or, you know, raised questions about it, you know, I've had open discussions with them, and they've been um, very cool with it. So, um, I, I see Jeff is asking about telling my close friends. And, yeah, we did, um, I I think, um, you know, my, my ex, uh, Michael, who's like my best friend in the world, um, you know, he had communicated. We, we still have most of the same circle of friends. And so he had kind of communicated that to them. Many of them had visited me in the hospital, and so um, many of them had suspected it anyway, so they've remained close. I've not had um, anybody that I can think of that has, you know, stepped back or, um, you know, disowned me as a friend or unfriended me on Facebook or anything like that because of... uh, um, either being gay or my HIV status or whatever. Um, and I guess my personal feeling is if if that's too much for you to handle, that's not my issue, it's your issue. So um, I suppose, you know, I'll run into that at some point, but uh, so far it hasn't been an issue. Well, that's good. That's good. What, what, about, um, what about working? You know, uh, you're in the healthcare industry. You're in the healthcare. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. What is it that you do, and how do you handle, if at all, this, does the HIV issue come up there? Um, it hasn't really come up. The only time it came up was the hospital that I was working at, um, at the time of my diagnosis. And at that time, um, I, when I had all the blood work for, you know, the HIV-related stuff, CD4, viral load, all that stuff. Um, I also had my hepatitis uh, B. Um, one of the tests came back showing that I was tested positive for the hepatitis B envelope antigen or the E antigen, and that's an indicator of uh, viral replication. And so they... Um, said because of that, I wasn't going to be able to scrub in surgery anymore, which is what I did in addition to teaching, you know, new scrub people how to scrub in surgery. So I wasn't able to scrub in surgery anymore. And um, shortly afterwards, um, that hospital um, decided to eliminate my position, um, you know, apparently because they were trying to cut costs and stuff, but I had found out that, like, three to six months after they eliminated my position, they filled that position. So I was like, okay. Um, But since then, um, you know, I'm not, I haven't, like, disclosed that to my um, uh, manager, Um, although I was sick um, this past year, well, 
this past year was good, but the past year before that, um, I had the uh, cryptococcal meningitis. So I discussed that, and I was off work for a while dealing with that. And my my manager is a registered nurse, so she may have, you know, put two and two together. She knows that I'm gay, and, um, you know, people don't generally uh, present with cryptococcal meningitis unless you've had epidural inf- uh, injections from a pharmacy in Massachusetts. Um, <clears throat> but... Um, uh, she she may have suspected it, but everybody's been cool at work, and I have some of my employees are on my Facebook page, so they may have seen posts, um, you know, that I have posted. For example, about this radio show tonight. Um, <laughs> so you know, it's it's up to them to deal with it. I don't think that there's um, any relevance for them to have a need to know about it. But, you know, if they know about it, I also am not opposed to it. Um, that's kind of how I feel, I guess. So. Okay. And yeah, that's cool. <clears throat> Go ahead. I was just going to say, <laughs> Tim, I was going to say, uh, we hold your question. What I want to do is I want to take a quick little uh, break and play uh, one of our greater than PSAs, and then when we come back, you can ask that question to can, okay? All right. Let's come on back and so, pretty We'll be right back. All right. I contracted a preventable disease from a guy that looks good and smells good but never mentioned that he had HIV. But he is not to blame. I should have loved myself enough to protect myself. But through it all, I found self-love, and it's the greatest thing I ever felt. I was never less than or equal to AIDS, but always greater. I just realized that not caring for myself or my body, I was my biggest hater. I am author of the Naked Truth, Marvin Brown, and I am greater than AIDS. What's going on out here? We got changes to make. It's time to wake up for humanity's sake. Break the silence today before it's too late. AIDS is affecting us, disrespecting us. I'ma go get tested. It's a simple maneuver. It's not about the past. It's about my future. I'm not trying to miss it. I won't be a statistic, so I protect myself whenever I'm intimate. At this moment, I decided to have a plan. It's time to take a stand, because AIDS, I'm greater than. This is Senior Chaos, and this was my deciding moment. Tell us yours at greaterthan.org. And you are back live on Positive Radio with Jeremy Dunn, Robert Brining, and our fabulous guest, Ken Warnock. Ken, are you there? I am still here. Great, great. Great to have you with us. Thanks for hanging out with us for the hour. Go ahead, Jeremy, your question. Oh, gosh, where was I going with this? Um, oh, 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 working, working in the hospital, working in the uh, healthcare industry and all that jazz. So um, tell us what you do. Because I, I think what you do is kind of interesting. So um, tell us what, you, what it is you Yes, I work in management, so I don't do much of anything. <laughs> um, actually, I'm a shift supervisor in uh, surgical services. I work in the sterile processing department, so I make sure that all the surgical instrumentation is assembled and sterilized. Or I actually make my people do that. <laughs> So I just sit in my office and play solitaire on the computer. At least that's what they think. So, yeah. <laughs> so um, it, it's kind of nice because I'm really close to the OR, and I'm actually up in the OR um, several times during the shift. So I do get to help out. Um, and that was, you know, the hardest thing after my diagnosis, you know, being told that I – wasn't going to be able to scrub in surgery because I really, really enjoyed that a lot. Um, and so, yeah, I miss that. So it's nice to go out there and I, you know, BS with the doctors and, um, you know, tons of stories I could tell about that. Um, but, yeah. Um, so, so did I, you ever lose any equipment, you know, like after they closed up and, and then they went and did the inventory, any, like, missing, you know, forceps? Right. Well, we don't. Um, we we do the inventory as we're setting up the instrument set as we're putting it back together, and we're like, oh, there's you know something missing. Um, so we'll notify the OR at that point uh, that something's missing. 
Um, yeah, we just sent Mrs. Jones home. Oh, we need to bring her back. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, our our biggest challenge, because they do count things in the OR, they're really good about that. Um, you know, there's been a huge push on reducing errors because you don't get reimbursed for those, you know, minor little mistakes. Um, but my issue, because they do so many surgeries, it's like the same day kind of thing that... Um, if I have an employee who gets stuck with an instrument or if they leave a scalpel or needle in the instrument set when they send it down and one of my employees gets caught, we have to do blood draws on them, and I can't do that if they've sent the patient home. So that's that's kind of challenging. Um, fortunately, it doesn't happen that often. Um, you know, everybody's pretty well aware of standard precautions and sharp safety and all that other stuff, but it does happen occasionally. Oh, yeah. So when you talk about scrubbing, what do you mean? Um, well, the scrub person is actually a surgical technologist. I actually teach that over at Macomb Community College in Oakland Community College here in Michigan. Um, uh, same place that Kathy Juris uh, teaches at. And um, okay. yeah, and um, I just saw her on World AIDS Day at a couple of events, so that was nice to see her again. And um, uh, so you're the person who goes into the OR room. You open up everything that needs to be opened up, sterile. You put on your gown and gloves, set up the tables, and drink the patient. And then you know when the doctor says knife, you're the one who hands the knife to the doctor. So, gotcha. Yeah. And then when the doctor asks for something that he's asking for the wrong thing, you're supposed to be able to anticipate, no, what the doctor really wants is this, not that. So, yeah, you have to do mind reading for the doctors. So, yeah. So, it's, I, you know, I found it very um, uh, intellectually stimulating, very challenging. Surgeons as a group, I think doctors in general, are incredibly smart people, and with all the stuff that they have to stay current on, um, these doctors know history, I mean, just regular world history and, you know, trivia, and it, it was just amazing that the, the stuff that they know and they'd be asking questions and, you know, oh, did you know what happened on this date in 1218? And I'm like, geez, no, I wasn't born then, but tell me, doctor. <laughs> and, and it's, like, amazing the stuff that these guys know. Um, and I had one surgeon I used to work with. Every time they had, like, a, an opening for a movie, uh, they had that video crews, the news, you know, people showing these lines of people. I'd always see him there, him and his kids. He'd take his kids out to the midnight screening of whatever, Batman or you know, mm-hmm. The Hobbit or whatever. And um, so, yeah. Um, so that was, um, yeah, it was a great experience. So I, I like getting up to the OR now as part of my job so I can interact with, um, you know, the uh, the surgeons and the surgical staff members. So And some of my former students actually um, uh, have a work up in the OR. So it's kind of cool I get to see them as well. Yeah, I see Jeremy posted that the VH1 Divas is on, so I guess he needs to leave. (laughs) (laughs) Let me know when you're up. I'll have to change the channel here to watch that. Yeah. That's funny. So, so Ken, one of the things that you actually participated in that we were, uh, Jeremy and I were a part of in the radio show was uh, the hashtag HIV. Um, Yeah project that we did, and can you tell us a little bit, because I think, I believe the photo that I have used right now when people are watching, one of them is actually your hashtag HIV photos, because it actually fit in. Oh, yeah. Um, I think, so can you tell us a little bit about what that was about and the concept of it? <laughs> yeah, I took that one. That one was at work, and I took it by a sterilizer rack right in front of a sterilizer, um, you know, because the critical thing, it, it was kind of interesting because the, the critical thing that we do is make sure that things are sterile before they get to the patient. And, you know, one of our goals in the HIV community is to see the eradication of this virus so other people will not be exposed to the virus. 
And so I kind of thought that that picture um, was kind of cool for that reason. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. No, I liked I it as like well, it. so. Cool. So yeah. tell us a little bit about, um, you know, was the International AIDS Conference your first um, conference? Actually, uh, yeah. Um, well, it was my first uh, HIV-AIDS-related conference. Right, yeah, right. I'm sorry, that's yeah. what I meant, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so I want to talk a little bit about that, but first, I mean, we have about 15 minutes left. I want to open up the lines uh, for people to call in, so if you're interested in calling and speaking uh, with Ken or you have a question for Ken, you can reach us at 347-215-9442, and we'll bring you on the air, or you can enter in the chat room or tweet it to us at POSIM. So what was your take on the conference? Um, I thought it was really motivational, um, very... I, I think it was really motivational and it was um, inspiring for me because, you know, they they talked about an AIDS-free generation. Um, I got to meet Timothy uh, Ray Brown when I was there and I'm like, wow, there is possibly a cure in our future. Um, you know, like, you know, possibly within our life, lifetime. Um, and that's something that is so different. Um, last weekend after the show, last Sunday after the show, I watched the movie How to Survive a Plague. And, um, you know, I was, we never had, we had ACT UP here in Michigan, and I knew some of the people involved with it, but it wasn't as intense as it was, like in New York, which was the epicenter of the epidemic. And, um, it, it's really interesting to look at things today, like our World AIDS Day celebrations here. Um, they were mostly like uh, straight people that were there. It wasn't like a huge, um, it, it wasn't the gay community doing things like uh, it was through the 80s and the 90s. Um, so that was a big change. Um and going to the conference and seeing all these people that were hopeful that one day you would actually have a cure, possibly a vaccine. Um, and I think um, uh, it was, like, really um, just inspirational for me. And, you know, I got to meet you and Jeremy and Aaron and Daniel and... Timothy, and uh, I, I met Maria, and I met uh, Butch McKay. He's got his workshop coming up uh, in a couple of months. Um, so it was, like, really cool. These are all people that, you know, I've kind of met as I've kind of come out of my shell. You know, I'm so shy and demure um, that um, it was, like, really, um, really motivational for me as well. Uh, yeah. That's very cool. That's very cool. Um, yeah, so I'm looking so forward to Australia. Are you going to Australia? Into your... I actually would like to, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah that would be a ride. Yeah. You know, going, going down under just sounds so fun anyway. So, <laughs> goodness, goodness. So, um, so we're kind of getting down to the last few minutes of the show, um, Ken. And so... Tell us, you know, today what's going on with you, what what it is that you're looking and what, what it is that you're really working on these days, besides your day job. Um, yeah, besides all, all my other jobs. Um, well, they had that issue with the Dearborn Police Department, that traffic stop from August, so I had met with the chief of police, um, and we're working on setting up, um, I, I guess, kind of like sensitivity training. I, I know that there are officers... And I actually know some of the officers because where I work is actually in the city of Dearborn. Um, and they, they do some training on bloodborne pathogens and stuff. Um, but to actually know people with HIV um, is something that, you know, they, they can actually put a face with a name and kind of understand what it's really like to, you know... Um, interact with people who are HIV positive. Because um, I, I think most people, you know, just 
go through life without realizing that, you know, they're interacting with somebody who's HIV positive. So um, I'm looking forward to that uh, training session, you know, when when we get it finally uh, set up and scheduled. So, yeah. Um, and other than that, um, I volunteered for some of the World AIDS Day events here uh, in uh, Detroit. We did the screening of Bad Blood. Um, they did a screening of How to Survive a Plague um, on World AIDS Day, but it was during the day, and I have to TI teach on Saturdays. I just finished yesterday, thank goodness. Um, and um, so I wasn't able to see the movie um, at the theater. Uh, I guess the turnout was pretty good for that. And then we had a um, uh, red and white event um, downtown in Detroit um, that was pretty well attended as well. So that was a nice event. So I volunteered at that. Um, had Dad BAs bear with me. So that was kind of cool. Um, got my camera stolen at that event, though, so I was kind of ticked off about that. But, yeah. Oh, no. Any of you who might have Ken's camera, Shame, shame, shame on you. Did you yeah, really sure that that bad? Bit, yeah. Shame. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Oh, wow. Shame. Yeah. And I got a new iPhone, so I'm happy about that. And I got a oh, new car, good. so, yeah, so, yeah, there's been a fair amount of stuff going on. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, Jeffrey Berman says that he has your I camera. I see that. Yeah, so bad. Somebody's getting a spanking. <laughs> so, so, Ken, it, what is it that you tell people um, if, if they were to be diagnosed today and uh, they needed your What What's the one piece of advice that you would give them? Um, I think, and after I was diagnosed, I actually became the test site coordinator of the test site that I was tested at, which was the largest community non-health department site in the state of Michigan, Um, and when we would have a positive result, you know, I would sit down with them and I'd say, now listen, this is, you know, a a serious thing. I mean, it's, you know, a life-changing thing, but it's not what it was 10, 15, 20 years ago. Um, This is really kind of a chronic manageable condition and you know I the most important thing is you you can't panic about it um you you have to um you know be able to be involved with your care be able to make uh, decisions with your uh healthcare providers i mean i've got a great relationship with my doctor um and you know, understand that you're going to be around for a while. This is not one of those things where six months from now or two years from now you're going to be gone. This is not like 1983 or 84. So, you know, take a deep breath and, you know, just hang tight. Um, You know, like Dan Savage had that project, It Gets Better. You know, I guess in a way it gets better especially if you don't take ACT. <laughs> so, yeah, that's awesome. Some great great words of advice there for, for people who are newly diagnosed now. And what did you do to find support? Um, you know, actually, personally, I really did not seek it out. There are a couple of support groups that I've gone to, um, mostly because, Friends of mine have gone, so it's been more of kind of a social thing. Um, And it's nice to know that groups like that are there. And I think it's really important for anybody who's newly diagnosed to know about different groups that are there because some people do need that support. They need to know, they need to feel validated. And even for myself, I, I needed to know that I wasn't the only person, you know, dealing with this. And knowing that, you know, if I'm having issues with the medication, there's other people and I can say, hey, it's this normal thing or not. Um, You know, my doctor says, oh, don't worry about it, whatever. And I don't know, is it serious? Should I, like, push the doctor or whatever? And so talking to peers, um, 
is really, really important, I think. Um, so I, I strongly recommend it to people um, that they at least check it out. Um, it's not necessarily saying it's going to be for you and you have to, you know, it's not like a 12-step program. Um, you know, it's uh, something that's there, and some people like to have that close support like that. Right. Well, well since you're in Michigan, um, what are some places around your area that, that people can go and, you know, and go and get, you know, information or go and get tested and stuff like that. There has to be some, some like, aid service organizations around your area. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, we've got, um, yeah, we've got the Midwest AIDS Prevention Project. Um, A lot of these are, like, in Detroit and the um, southeast Oakland County, like Ferndale, Royal Oak area. Um, But Midwest AIDS Prevention Project is out there. Um, Access, uh, which is uh, for the Arab-American community there in Dearborn, um, AIDS Partnership Michigan, which is um, who I had worked for um, briefly when I was the site coordinator um, at the uh, HIV testing site. Um, Open Arms is one of the support groups that I've, you know, been involved with, and they actually are going to go see The Hobbit next Saturday. So if anybody listening is from Michigan and would like to do that, they're meeting up at the Imagine Theater in Royal Oak on Saturday about noon um, to go see The Hobbit. And um, HARC, uh, the HIV AIDS Resource Center out in uh, Washtenaw County, Ann Arbor area, um, you know, they're available and that's a really, really great group I've referred people to. Um, WINGS um, is another uh, group that I've uh, gone to. in the area, and then we've got the Affirmations Dan Lesbian Community Center right there in downtown Ferndale as well. So, um, yeah, there's, you know, it's it's nice if you're in the area. Um, I think it's really challenging sometimes for people who live um, farther out, especially in some of the more rural areas or outstate Michigan um, or the Upper Peninsula. You know, I think the resources are... Um, much scarcer for people out there. Um, so that's kind of challenging. No, I think that's a great list of, you know, places that people can check out in your area. So you said you're actually in Detroit or around uh, Detroit? I live in Royal Oak, just, just north of Detroit, yeah. So how far are you but, from, like, um, you know, uh, American <laughs> jewelry loan <laughs> from the, uh, oh, what do you call the, it? The uh, what is it? That's the hardcore one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That's like a bizarre show. Actually, not very far. I've driven by it. Um, I have not been in there. Um, but I'm like, oh wow, you know, I it's right on eight mile road, and I I'm just north of eleven mile road, so it's not far away. <laughs> Um, yeah, you have to check that out. Let me know what it's like inside. So there's people really. Are those people from your area that freaky? <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, we got, yeah, we definitely have some, got some left. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, don't, don't mess with me. I'm from Detroit, dude. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, that's yeah, it's, it's very interesting because, um, you know, people are like, uh, you know, where, where are you from? Oh, I live in Royal Oak. Oh, where's that? Oh, Detroit. Oh, Detroit. Oh, wow, dude, don't mess with him. Um, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. So... Yeah. Well, that's great, Ken. You know, we actually, um, we are down to our last minute, so I want to thank you for coming on and sharing your story with our audience and hanging out with us for the hour. And, you know, it's always a pleasure, and I hope to see you at an upcoming conference. Yes, definitely, yeah. And people can find you on uh, Twitter, correct? Correct, Twitter and Facebook and, you know, um, bathroom walls, I they, guess. <laughs> you go. Right, so if, you, um, if people go to uh, tw- the uh, Pause on Facebook or Twitter page. There's links to Ken's um, there through uh, either a tweet or a post. You can find him through that way. Ken, thanks a lot for joining us. We hope you have a great night. Thanks, and have a great holiday, you guys. You yes, too, you too, man. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. All right, and you can find more information on our guest, Ken Warnock, by um, Facebook or Twitter, tweeting him at Ken Warnock. So, Jeremy, another great show. I'm excited. We are actually off next week. So there will be no show on December 23rd, and then we will return on the 30th 
uh, with a friend, personal friend of mine, James Brennick, who will be sharing his story. He just recently came out uh, publicly on Facebook about a week ago. Wow. Um, so it's a big step, and he's going to come on and share his story next week, so I'm excited about that. Wonderful. Um, I can't wait. I'm sorry? I said wonderful. I can't wait. Yeah, he's on the 30th. So for more information on the fabulous Jeremy Dunn, you can go to his website, PositivelySpeaking.com. For more information on myself, past radio shows, and some upcoming shows and information, and to join the POSLAM social network, uh, you can check us out at POSLAM.com or POSLAM.org. Hope you have a great night. Jeremy, I will speak to you in two weeks. I'm sure I'll speak to you before, but on air in two weeks. And on air in two weeks, and everybody have a great holiday. Yes, have a great holiday, everyone. Bye-bye.